Game Cool Books, Episode 78, Her Own Key to the Garden. The final chapter in The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman. Chapter 38, The Botanic Garden, has no epigraph. Um, and as we've been talking about these epigraphs all along, this leaves us with something of a bind. The implication is that this story, as it ends, is pointing back to nothing so much as the uh, life and uh, possibilities of its characters, their relationships to one another, and the openness that that leaves us with. Um, this chapter does have an illustration, however. Uh, Pullman has made pictures for each of the chapters throughout the story. Uh, and we haven't been talking about those as much, but this one's interesting. It's a couple of roses tied together with a ribbon. They grow around and past one another and end up facing apart. The likely chapter, uh, or rather title for his final book of dust is supposedly going to be Roses from the South. Um, in the Botanic Garden, we start with the arrival of the Egyptians. They come ashore, um, only uh, the leaders, Fartacorum, uh, John Fa, the ship's captain, and Serafina Pekula, the witch, uh, to greet Mary and the Mulefa with curiosity and courtesy on both sides. We're told that John Fa extends, uh, embodies grace and friendship. They endure the long speech of Sadamax, the old Mulefa, and they bring greetings from their homeland, the waterways that, of course, Lyra herself experienced it, at least a little bit in her journey with the Egyptians. And in one of those first moments of exciting story that we get from her childhood, the theft of the Egyptian boat. The uh, Mulefa in turn carry Coram up to their village, as they can tell that he's uh, struggling with the walk. And there they meet Will and Lyra. It's been an age since they've seen one another. Last in the snows of the Arctic, back in their world, as they were rescuing the children from Bolvanger. But they embrace warmly. Uh, Vardacorn says she's growed up and he wants the tongue of an angel. Even then he wouldn't be able to tell how glad he is to see her. But and the narrator here pops into Farquhar's own internal thoughts. She looks so hurt and frail and weary to him. Both he and John Fa notice the way that Lyra stays close to Will. Their mutual respect uh, is illustrated now from Will's point of view, though as he sees John Fa in massive power, tempered by courtesy, calls him a shelter and a strong refuge, echoing that biblical uh, uh, King James language uh, that Pullman is so fond of. Um, and also perhaps uh, 
alluding to Pullman's own grandfather, the clergyman. Um, they stay on land only long enough to take on necessary stores and, as they say, to allow their, uh, their men to be able to tell about the world that they saw when they return home. They're invited and gladly accept the invitation to share a meal with their guests, with their hosts. So that evening, the people of three worlds break bread together. Um, they exchange gifts, uh, each highly particular to a culture. The Jennifer, the walrus ivory, uh, the kind of thing that both uh, Azriel and uh, Tony Costa told Lyra they'd bring back for her from their adventures, of course. Um, tapestries of Turkestan um, and dishes from Korea. Whereas uh, the Mulefa the not to be outdone offered the nets uh, of such quality that even the Fenja dwelling Egyptians had never seen the like. This illustrates a kind of ideal uh, meeting of cultures, um, again, sharing not only the particular gifts, but the uh, concept of uh, courtesy and respect for one another that those represent. Um, still more, the Mulefa want to show the Egyptians the great responsibility that has fallen to them. Uh, they take them to where the ghosts come out from the land of the dead, and they're growing up around it, a grove, a holy place, um, that it is a joy for them to uh, have this token of the of the change that's come over things fall to their lot uh, to care for. And the two old men here have a conversation that is reminiscent really of the uh, the librarian and the master back at the very beginning, um, in this case, talking directly about death, that it's a thing they all fear, say what they might, that it eases Father Quorum's mind to know there's a way out. And John Fa, for his part, having sent men down to the dark, says that it's uh, a great promise uh, to know that they be let out again after a spell in the dark to a sweet land where they'll be free like birds. Um, they want to talk to Lyra to learn how this happened and what it means. And we don't actually see that conversation. We jump to Mary Malone saying goodbye to the Mulefa, uh, to Atal, she promises never to forget, even if she lives as long as the witches. Um, and she does gain a kind of witch lore here shortly. She brings with her a gift from the Mulefa of their oil and their seeds uh, to grow the great trees. They um, leave while the seas are calm and see the glitter of white wings, but they keep well clear. Um, the two weeks of the journey, we're told, pass like the blink of an eye for Will and Lyra. Uh, it's a bit like Will's journey uh, up the river um, to find Lyra at the start of the book. 
uh, so long ago. And the angelic knowledge here uh, helps explain some of this movement, uh, if not the time it takes to do it. Apparently the worlds will be restored to their proper relations. Once all the windows are closed, they will be like transparent images on film as they merge and cross and finally line up perfectly, though they'll never touch. As it is, they are far as far um, from Lyra's Oxford as she had to travel to reach Chittagatse. Um, but of course, Will's Oxford overlaps with that city. And so they return to the dreamlike waterfront and cafe, uh, empty now, truly, but uh, armed Egyptians come ashore with them in just in case. Here they share a last meal together and we get their goodbyes. Um, again, these are not narrated for us and perhaps it's because Will himself is hardly aware of what's going on. He is, as they say, stricken when we see him from the Egyptian's perspective. He and Lyra walk hand in hand a little ahead and we jump back to Mary and Serafina talking like sisters. Apparently Lyra has something in her mind to show them just a little way into Will's Oxford. And then the plan is to go to her flat and then find Will's mother. They'll have to satisfy the authorities. And I think that's the last time this heavily fraught word appears in the story because there's many questions that will need answered, a whole legal battle in which she thinks she can help him. And after all, she needs him too, because Will is the only person Mary will be able to talk to about all this. Um, they come to a square tower. Of course, it must be the Torre degli Angeli, although it's not named. Um, its door opens into darkness. The cafe, the trees uh, along the boulevard, all are, again, like images from a dream as they come to the end of their journey, that open window that Will found with the help of the stray cat. And Will closes the window. And with it, we close off all those political implications that Sir Charles, Lord Boreal, seemed interested in with respect to the windows and the power of the knife to open them. Um, instead, what the story is interested in is what it is that Lyra intends to show. So we continue on past a parkland with its portico, um, Sir Charles's house, presumably. Um, and then uh, Mary Malone and Serafina Pecola talk about the power to see demons. So this is something that uh, Serafina calls witch lore that would be forbidden under the old ways, although everyone in Lyra's world apparently can see their demons. Um, still, perhaps only the witches understand why that is. Um, she explains it in terms of seeing the shadows on the computer, uh, that it required a certain state of mind, exactly like Lyra with the alethiometer, 
and adding on to that ordinary seeing at the same time. The analogy we're given here is uh, 3D images that show up when you look at the dots of color a certain way and the tree or the face pops out suddenly and appears solid. Um, so while looking with her ordinary eyes, Mary has to hold that trance-like open dreaming and um, by doing so, she quite suddenly is able to see her own demon, uh, a bird, the alpine chaff. Just for a moment, and then the amusement that she takes to be on his face suddenly uh, causes her concentration to slip, but it will be easier next time, Serafina says. She'll even be able to see others' demons, and they won't see hers unless she teaches them. So she immediately begins to wonder if she'll soon be able to talk to her demon as well. Um, we check on our location here, uh, somewhere in North Oxford, somewhere close to Mary Malone's flat, but um, not sure exactly where so we don't get a particular street. In any case, the Botanic Garden turns out to be Lyra's destination, about a 15 minute walk, and they continue on in Will and Mary's world. Um, practicing that double seeing, Mary allows the demon to step onto her hand and then lifts her up to her shoulder. The weight is familiar as if he'd been with her all her life. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we finally do arrive at Maudlin College. The, um, the gateway is closed, but they climb over the iron fence um, as their demons flow ahead of them. We shift now to Will and Lyra's perspective, and this will be their um, final uh, goodbyes as they come to a pool with a fountain and a huge many-trunked pine they cross a little bridge and come to that seat under the tree, which apparently is where Lyra would go in her own world when she wanted to be alone. And she's uh, going to exact a promise that Will will meet her there once a year at this same spot, an hour or so, um, so that they can pretend that they'll be close, as indeed they would be. He immediately confirms that he'll do so as long as he lives. She suggests midsummer day at midday. Uh, so the uh, longest day of the year. Um, and again, that idea of as long as they live is repeated. So there's a kind of cosmic brightness about this, even though it's the middle of the night. Um, and Will finds himself unable to see. Of course, that's because of tears, not the light or the dark. But it's um, uh, Lyra who goes on to say that if they do meet someone that they end up marrying, they have to not make comparisons to one another, because um, that wouldn't be fair, but that they would go on meeting in that 
hour in the summer just the same. There's a kind of silence here as we then get from Will's perspective the sounds of a bird on the water and a car over the bridge, um, the feeling of softness begins to suffuse everything from the way that Lara says, well, to the memories that Will has of her later, to her tense grace, um, and to their kisses, goodbye, each closer to the last one of all, which is described in some detail. Um, their, uh, their names are the last thing they do say to one another. Um, and then we get a, um, a moment when the two are saying goodbye to the uh, sisters, that is, Mary and Serafina, um, exacting promises from one another. In this moment, uh, Will says that no one has been loved the way that he loved Lyra. Um, we don't hear what she's whispering to Mary, but it's got to be something similar uh, with respect to him. And they finally come to their goodbye, um, a kiss goodbye th through the last window of all, and a kind of clumsy, uh, tear-filled kiss that plants uh, a tear from Lyra onto his face. Their demons touch noses and farewell, and he closes the window. The last thing you can see is the strain in her smile, but she smiles nevertheless. And that kind of cheerfulness um, seems to be an important virtue that uh, each of them is learning in this moment. Finally, Will turns to break the knife so before, when the knife broke, it was an accident. It was because of Will being reminded of his mother. And he has a theory now about why that happened. He thinks the knife meant something it couldn't cut, and that was his love for her. But the strange thing is that when he tries that now, it doesn't work. And maybe Mrs. Coulter was doing something else. And that something else is put in a simpler way by Will's demon, Kiryava, says simply, Lyra. So the kind of love that the knife can't cut has at least some unique or individualized quality that has to do with the romantic sort of love that Will has for Lyra and that he briefly felt stir in him on looking at Mrs. Coulter. The world of the rainstorm becomes blended with that imagery of water and tears. He touches Lyra's tear on his cheek as he cuts into the space between worlds. It causes the knife to crack and shatter. And then there's a mixture of the glitter of the broken shards among the stones wet with that rain. And 
he has his demon help him find them all, all the pieces of that knife. Um, and it's unclear exactly how he plans to dispose of it, uh, whether those pieces could ever be reforged is uh, obviously not the concern of the story here, but whether they might still be dangerous, uh, it's at least able to cut. Um, yeah, seems plausible. Uh, the promises that Mary has made uh, for her part have to do with taking care of Will as he asked Serafina to take care of Lyra. And she puts it this way, that she would like him to be friends with her. And she is honest about why she needs a friend and says exactly what she said to the witch earlier, that she has no one else she can talk to. Um, but there's more. They both have to live with their demons. And as we know from later books, that isn't always easy. Um, then we come back to the... Um, practical side of things. They're both in a bit of trouble. And this is the really the only bit of humor that we get in this, uh, this chapter at the end here about the smashed up computer and the forged ID. But it's nothing that they can't deal with. Um, she says that she'll help find Will's mother and get her the treatment she needs. In the meanwhile, if he needs somewhere to live, and stay with her they'll decide on a story um, and it comes home to will that he never thought of that that he also would need a friend and like other books in Pullman's uh, other series and fairy tales and fables this this worldly piece of the story ends with their a uh, homely phrase of wanting a cup of tea and putting the kettle on. Um, then we jump back into Lyra's world. We end where we started, back at Jordan College. They're at the dinner table where she had first fallen under the spell of Mrs. Coulter, uh, who's cited by name here, alluded to in other ways. And we have a counterpart for her in Dame Hannah, the master of St. Sophia's College. She was that other scholar there at the first dinner, but Lyra finds her memory was very faulty on this point because Dame Hannah seems much cleverer now than before. There's a brief summary of the way in which the power of the church increased and then suddenly fell away as its brutal laws and uh, and harsher factions were defeated. Um, it lost its leaders and its uh, hold on the colleges in particular here has been broken as they revive their scholarship and ritual. The uh, servant cousins who we met way back at the start of the first book. Uh, similarly to Dame Hannah, seems much changed to Lyra because he greets her with warmth and affection when she's ready to defy him. That defiance is still there in the uh, 
conversation that she's having with the two older scholars. They want her to tell her something, tell them something of her adventures. And she will, but she makes them promise something um, as well. In exchange for her telling the truth, she wants them to believe what she tells them. So we have a kind of reciprocal trust and promise giving that takes place here as well. The thing that she wishes almost more than anything is that she hadn't lost the way of reading the alethiometer. It came so suddenly and then left, kind of like the power of the church. It's meanings. She could climb up and down and from one to another like a monkey in the trees. This is her simile, and it surely should make us think of her mother and her mother's demon, at least for a moment there, just as that thing she wishes almost more than anything should probably make us think of Will. But instead of telling them anything they don't know, what she's really doing here is asking, and it's inarticulate at first what exactly she's asking for, but it becomes clear that she would like to learn to read the alethiometer. Now, she still has the basic meanings that Father Korm taught her about the anchor, meaning hope, and the skull, meaning death. But that knowledge, as Dame Hannah points out, is not actually gone because the books are still there in Bodley's library. Pullman has said a similar thing about attempts to adapt his story to other media. The books are still there, no matter what the adaptation succeeds or fails at for us to read, and the scholarship to read them is alive and well. As far as the alethiometer goes, um, they seem able to read Lyra better than she can read them in this moment, um, much like Father Corm and John Fah with Will earlier. They can see that um, she is uh, is very much um, defiant. This is what Dame Hannah sees. She admires her for it. And she's holding her chin high with a look that she learned from Will without knowing it. The observer there can only be the narrator himself. And it starts to blend with these two older scholars because the language of unconscious grace comes in from the observation of the master here. And he is proud and in awe of the beautiful woman she's becoming. He echoes her own words here and says that she is never lost because she has a home here at Jordan. Lyra's plan is unclear. She thinks she might need to work, but doesn't know about what. She might need to make some money because she's sure that her parents have left her none. She could go and live with the bears or the witches or possibly the Egyptians, but much as she loves them, she isn't part of any of those worlds, truly. And it isn't entirely clear that she's a part of this one either, because the suggestion is that she'll go and study at Dame Hannah's school instead. So the uh, reader of the prophecy that we learned about way back at the start of the book. Most likely it was Dame Hannah herself because she is unmatched in the scholarship of the alethiometer. Apparently, the 
teachings on this point as on others will help Lyra learn consciously what had been done before by intuition. And this has a two parts to it, not just the study of books and tutelage of Dame Hannah, but also the friendship of other girls. She can decide and take her time in the decision, but it seems clear that uh, that opportunity to go to this boarding school uh, and have a chance to make new friends as well as having those private lessons with Dame Hannah uh, would in some way answer all of Lyra's wishes, except perhaps the one. This brings us to the final scene of the book. Lyra has been given a key to the garden door by the master. And she still sneaks by the porter, maybe for old time's sake, as he locks up the lodge she heads out to the, the uh, to find her way through the streets um, to the Botanic Garden. The bells of Oxford are tolling midnight, and the uh, the secrets that they keep from everyone about their ability to separate are paired here with a kind of secret that the demons are keeping from Will and Lyra, and that is as far as their story, there is part of it that Lyra herself doesn't know. That's what the demons did while they were separated, while Will and Lyra were in the world of the dead. So while Lyra has told Pan everything, he still has something that he's keeping back from her, and she thinks that that is fair and right. So these layers of secrets are connected with these layers of promises here too, because the two demons had promised one another that they would tell their people what they did someday, and they agreed that they would know when that was. But we're not given any further indication about that here. So, well, uh, sorry, Lyra and Pan are discussing the um, prospects of taking up Dame Hannah on her offer, and Lyra is concerned that the other pupils, the other girls, will know more than her about all those important things that she first started learning from Mrs. Coulter. Um, we get a glimpse of Will here at the very end because of the way in which Lyra has learned from him the value of silence, of keeping secrets, and perhaps of keeping promises too. Um, she thinks of him every hour um, and feels the longing for his love like a tender bruise that she'll cherish forever. That idea of a wound, um, of course, is literal in Will's case and is echoed here uh, in Lyra's heart. But Pan has something on his mind as well that Will said right before she lost the ability to read the alethiometer in such a different fashion from his loss of the knife. Um, he had said that there is no elsewhere, and it was something he was saying his father had told him. There was more to it, and it comes out 
between them, that the kingdom is over, and that this life and where we are are the most important place. If we're going to build something, we have to build it here in a long, full life that they'd have lost if they had followed after Will or that he would have lost having come into their world. And what they are going to build is something that depends on not putting themselves first. So that difficult kind of cheerfulness that Lyra and Will were making strides towards here towards the end. And what it is is interrupted by a few pretty important details. The Song of the Nightingale, the breeze that could recall the flow of dust, and the bells chiming, agreeing on the time, though some got there a little slower. That music, um, that bell-like song of their demons when they came back to them. Um, the thing that they plan to build is the Republic of Heaven. And the last words in the story are Lyra saying that. Um, so those, the first and last word in the book uh, is her name. It closes on a rather high task um, and one which Pullman discusses at some length in his lecture by the same name, The Republic of Heaven. Um, but as I've touched on great many of his essays, articles, and speeches and interviews, I thought I would close this long discussion by looking at his acknowledgments last of all. So the book closes with this, although it's not in the audiobook, where Pullman has uh, several people that he thanks for their help and encouragement. And it starts general and then becomes specific. Friends, family, books, and strangers, he says. Um, there are people who edited his work that let him see a narrow boat, um, found uh, an expert to tell him about archeological expeditions and to show him how to forge iron. People brought him the exact sort of paper he needed with two holes in it. And he also had a cafe at the Oxford Museum of Modern Art where a cup of coffee and an hour or so's work in that friendly room would dispel any problems in the narrative. He moves on to the books and the phrase, read like a butterfly, write like a bee, is his way of praising the things that he's stolen from better writers. And he holds up in particular the essay on the marionette theater by Heinrich von Kleist and Idris Perry's translation, the second, John Milton's Paradise Lost, and the third, the works of William Blake. His greatest debts, he say, are to his publisher, David Fickling, to Simon Boughton and Joan Slattery, who gave him time, and I believe those are more publishers or perhaps agents, his friend Keredek King, uh, his teacher Enid Jones, 
who first read him Paradise Lost, uh, to his wife and his sons. And he signs it at the end so that his name, in a way, is the final word in the story. There is so much more that I would have liked to discover in reading these books in this way and commenting on them. Um, but I feel that I've done about as much as I can and that any more at this point um, would just be drawing out the inevitable. Uh, Pullman has great insights into learning, uh, into writing, and into life, I think, which anyone reading these books would be well served to meditate on at some length for themselves. Um, I don't purport to offer any sort of exhaustive reading, but just I've enjoyed following up some of the threads and bits and pieces that um, can be discerned in what is certainly a great masterpiece of fantasy and realism, uh, of storytelling and of truth-telling. And I appreciate anyone out there who's listened. I hope that it's been interesting, um, but certainly it's mostly just been a labor of love on my part. So thank you and take care.